Hello, this is Abby Martin, and you're listening to the Empire Files podcast. Russia launched an invasion of Ukraine just days ago, and the fog of war is making it nearly impossible to discern the reality on the ground. With the threat of a larger conflict erupting, it's imperative to understand how we got to this point and what anti-war activists need to know about our role and the tectonic shift in geopolitics. To shed crucial insight on this changing situation, I spoke with longtime anti-war organizer Brian Becker for an Emergency Empire Files livestream with audience Q&A. This aired on February 26th. You can find the video on our YouTube channel, but we wanted to make sure this information was heard as widely as possible, so we're posting it here too. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash empirefiles. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the program, Brian. Becker. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So as we know, uh, earlier this week, uh, President Putin of Russia announced a invasion, military operations in the eastern part of Ukraine. We're going to get into all of these details, all of the context, uh, but I wanted to just establish that we are doing a very important live stream today with Brian Becker, uh, who is a longtime anti-war organizer, leader. He was a youth organizer against the Vietnam War. He's participated in organizing anti-war movements his entire life uh, from Vietnam, leading mass protests against the Gulf War, and of course, the immediate days following 9-11 against the war in Afghanistan, a principal organizer of rallies against the war in Iraq. Uh, Brian is also the author of a book called Imperialism in the 21st Century, which will of course come into our discussion later on. But first, we're going to get into, you know, what exactly is going on? What precipitated all of this? What led to this tinderbox situation that Putin just threw a match into? And we're going to lay all this out. And then we're going to get to the bigger picture questions. How did we get here? Where do we go from here? And what do we need to know as people in this movement who oppose war and want to call for peace? Before we begin, uh, I want to give people uh, the opportunity to write questions into the chat. We're going to be fielding those questions throughout the discussion that Mike Preisner, also from the Empire Files, is going to be uh, giving me real time. So please feel free to chime in. This is going to be an interactive discussion, and we're going to be addressing those throughout this conversation. So thank you so much for joining us with this very, very important conversation that we're about to have. Brian, let's get started. Sure. So, of course, uh, Abby, the the world is in a state of shock in many ways because uh, people, even those who have been watching the events very, very closely for the past three or four months as this crisis has evolved, I don't think anyone anticipated that uh, the Russian government would launch a full-scale military intervention, not simply in the eastern part of Ukraine in the Donbass or in in the two uh, independent people's republics that Russia earlier recognized this week after eight years of not recognizing them, but a, but an intervention that's from the north, the south, and the east. In other words, almost all but one side, not the western side of Ukraine, but the rest has been the subject of a very large scale and obviously long planned Russian military intervention. Uh, I, I think that it's important for our audience, especially those in the United States, who are getting 
almost all of their news from CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post, meaning the capitalist-owned media, which is so tied into the military-industrial complex and so functions as an echo chamber for U.S. government policy. I think it's important for people in the United States, but also in Western Europe who are largely subjected to the same sort of media infrastructure, to have an independent political understanding of what this crisis uh, is about, what caused it, uh, what's happening right now, and what the likely or possible outcomes are uh, in the coming days and weeks and months. I do believe that we are witnessing and have witnessed this in this week an event that will change global politics. This is uh, an era shifting event, what's happening. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed or was dissolved in, two, in 1991, at the end of 1991, that was 30 plus years ago. The Soviet Union was obviously the second major power in the world. It was the leader of the socialist camp, the countries of Eastern and Central Europe, not to mention the, the socialist governments in uh, Asia and in Cuba. Uh, all of them uh, you know, understood that there was a global socialist camp that was in conflict with the Western US-led imperialist camp. And while there were defects in that camp, China ultimately left the socialist camp uh, around the time its normalization of relations began with the United States following uh, Richard Nixon's trip to Shanghai. That was 50 years ago, the Shanghai Communique, literally signed two, two or three days from now. Uh, but with that said, there was a socialist camp and there was an imperialist camp, and there was a certain equilibrium between the two camps. As a consequence of the Soviets achieving military parity or near parity, and certainly parity on the nuclear front, there was at a certain point an understanding that should there be a war between the two camps in this bipolar world, that there would be mutually assured destruction, that no one could really win a nuclear war. If each side has thousands of nuclear weapons and they're on airplanes and they're in submarines and they're in land-based missile silos, in that nuclear exchange, there would be the end of humanity and life on the planet as we know it. And so this equilibrium of terror between the two sides, mutually assured destruction, in a way functioned as a deterrent to major power conflict. That doesn't mean that there weren't wars. There were wars all over the place. There was the Vietnam War, the Korean War. You could go on and on. But there wasn't sort of a repeat of World War II or World War I, where in the case of World War II, 100 million human beings were killed in a matter of five or six years. Uh, and the whole existing world order was basically shattered and left in ruins by 1945. There wasn't that kind of a conflict. But in the 30 years that have elapsed since the collapse or the dissolution or the overthrow of the Soviet Union and thus the socialist camp, U.S. policy has dramatically shifted. Instead of recognizing the limitations of American power vis-a-vis the two powers facing each other in this equilibrium, the United States policymakers, starting in 1991, established what eventually became the neocon consensus position that the United States would be able to exercise unipolar authority over the rest of the world 
that it would destroy all of the governments whose origin was rooted in the anti-colonial projects of the post-World War II area, uh, era, the countries that had looked to the socialist camp, even if they weren't part of it, they looked to it for military, economic, and diplomatic support. And I'm thinking there of Iraq and Libya and uh, Syria and several others, that those countries would be targeted for attack. So, and in fact, we witnessed that, right? We witnessed this giant acceleration uh, after the end of the Soviet era of American imperial aggressiveness. But there were there was a sort of an understanding in the 1990s that Russia was now on America's side, that Boris Yeltsin, who had helped overthrow the Soviet Union, who actually dissolved the Soviet Union illegally in December uh, 1991 in, the, in, a, in an accord signed with the uh, two or three other uh, republic leaders of the Soviet Union, there were 15 republics in the Soviet Union, that Boris Yeltsin was the anti-communist friend of the West. And Russia itself had become completely weakened as a consequence of the overthrow of the Soviet Union. Soviet life expectancy or Russian life expectancy decreased six years in six years between 1991 and 1997. That sort of diminution in life expectancy is unheard of except during wartime, but this was peacetime. The looting of Soviet public property, the impoverishment of its people, the, the destruction of what had been the Soviet social and economic infrastructure as a consequence of the capitalist takeover of, of Russia and the other former Soviet republics, it plunged, the, it plunged Russia and its people into, into dire poverty and into suffering. And it also weakened Russia on it as a geostrategic player and the United States was, in a way, content with that, with that situation. There was an accord signed between Russia and the United States in 1997 about NATO, about NATO-Russian relations. And there had been, before then, the promise uh, by James Baker, who was Secretary of State under the administration of George H.W. Bush, that NATO wouldn't move one inch eastward. We've heard all of that. You know, there was, those were the promises given. But there are a couple of things, Abby, that I think we have to really pay attention to in terms of why we are where we are right now. And, and let me let me jump in there to frame this because uh, you're completely right. I mean, and I want to get more into where we went with Russia from the collapse of the Soviet Union till today and and how that's manifested, because you mentioned something really important, this Cold War era architecture that was put into place after the dissolution of the Soviet Union that was trying to prevent this mutually assured destruction attitude that dominated you know, uh, generations prior. Um, all of these things were disbanded. All of these things were rejected. The entire framework basically fell apart, right? All of these diplomatic options to prevent the escalation to where we are right now was rejected. Um, and, and let's get into NATO because, of course, this is the main facet, right? Uh, this is the underpinning of the failed negotiations that were attempted before this invasion took place. January, Russia met with 30 NATO states in a series of talks to try to deliberate. And Russia's base concern, among several other concerns, was Ukraine should never join NATO, that no progress on all these other concerns could be made as long as this was not guaranteed, this was rejected. There was no resolution. Russia had a negotiator at the table that basically said, we are going to 
militarily react if this is not diplomatically negotiated. It became untenable. Everyone just thought that this was uh, that they were bluffing. Right. I mean, and I think many officials in the West who have been predicting this for months and months across corporate media still thought it was an empty threat. Perhaps they thought they could troll Russia into, you know, backing down. Maybe if they did think that Russia was, you know, putting this out there. But I think that a lot of them didn't think Russia would invade. And this includes a lot of Russian experts, Ukrainian officials, even the defense minister of Ukraine was saying that this was not going to happen. Now you see them following up a lot of these war hawks from the think tank establishment saying Putin's insane. He's crazy for doing this, even though these same people were saying he's about to do this for the last six months. You know, this long distrust of Western intelligence for lying about literally everything to get us into war, I think, made people think have this knee-jerk reaction that, no, of course, this isn't going to happen. But here we are, Brian. Let's take a look at the security concerns, namely NATO, uh, the existence of NATO going up to Russia's doorstep that led us to this failure of diplomacy. Give us a sense of what NATO is as a force. Why does it exist in the first place? What has it done since the fall of the Soviet Union? And are Russia's fears of NATO legitimate? Yeah, that, that's the most important thing, because I believe, Abby, that if the U.S. and the other NATO countries who are basically under the U.S. influence had taken a different step, had actually said yes to Russia in the last four months on what we have to agree are legitimate Russian security concerns, this would not be happening right now in Ukraine. So you you are right. This is this is the crux of the of the matter because it's why we are here. If you just look at if you look at life from the history of heroes and traitors, the hero of history, the, the uh, heroes and traitors, or heroes and villains. Right now, we know Putin is the villain, and all the Western powers, of course, are the good guys. But that deprives those who have that view of actually understanding the historical context, which is everything. So let's, and as a Marxist, I discard the history of great men or the great heroes and villains as the way to understand history and look at social and political forces that are in conflict with each other that also have a class basis. So what is NATO? NATO was formed in 1949. Uh, as at the Pentagon, it was a, a consummation of a military alliance of the United States and Britain and France and a few other European countries. It did not include Germany at that time. It was too soon after World War II to include a remilitarized, formerly Nazi Germany that had started World War II into a NATO alliance. But eventually that did happen, and that happened in 1955. And it was at that time that the Soviet Union, alarmed by the, uh, the bringing Germany into NATO just 10 years after the German invasion of the Soviet Union had been finally brought to a halt. And that invasion, of course, as we know, took 27 million lives of, the, of Soviet citizens, not to mention the genocide against Jews and Roma people, gay people, uh, the, the genocide perpetrated by fascism was brought to an end by the Soviet Union and its amazing heroism and counteroffensive, but at great cost, at great cost, 27 million dead. The Americans only lost 400,000. Not only, that's a lot of people dead in World War II, but compare it to 27 million dead. So NATO was formed in 1949. 
Then Germany is brought into NATO. And by West Germany, we mean a lot of Nazified Germany, by the way, in terms of the establishment. And then when the, when the Soviet Union collapses, their version of NATO, the Warsaw Pact, the mirror, the symmetry of a, a second military alliance representing the socialist camp is also extinguished. Instead of NATO disappearing, it takes on a different role. It has to find a reason to continue to exist. Why spend all of this money? Why, as Obama demanded and Trump insisted, should the European countries who are members of NATO guarantee that they'll spend at least 2% of their national budget for death and destruction? Otherwise, they won't be NATO members in good standing. It's a permanent military alliance. And where does, where does NATO go? It invades Afghanistan. Well, that's not part of the North Atlantic. It bombs Libya also not part of the North Atlantic. Before that, in 1999, it carried out a savage war, which apparently all the Western media has forgot about. They keep describing what's going on in Ukraine as the biggest war since uh, the end of World War II in Europe. Well, NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on Yugoslavia. Again, uh, similarly to what Russia is demanding about Eastern Ukraine, where the Russians are saying there's an abused minority people in the eastern part of Ukraine who are Russian speaking and we're going to defend them. The United States was using the Albanian, uh, Albanian Muslim, speak, Muslim population in Kosovo, a province of Serbia, as the pretext to go to war against Yugoslavia. So here you have war in Yugoslavia, war in Afghanistan, war against Libya. That's NATO after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The thing that most alarmed Russia after the year 2000, I would say, in 1999, there was a wave of NATO expansion and some of the former Russian allies and Soviet republics were incorporated into NATO. That included uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. And then in 2004, another wave of NATO expansion. But in 2008, NATO had a summit in Bucharest in, in Bucharest. And at that summit, the United States insisted, and France and Germany, and this is extremely important, France and Germany dissented from the American position. The U.S. insisted that the U.S. was going to bring Ukraine and Georgia, two important former Soviet republics and principal allies of Russia, into NATO. And the Russians at that point, who had tolerated the first and second wave of NATO expansion in 1999 and 2004, the Russians said, no, we're not going to allow either Georgia or Ukraine to come into NATO because that provides or presents an existential threat. And remember that that Bucharest summit was April 2008. The, the Russians moved into Georgia in August 2008. Remember, there was a battle in South Ossetia. That's when the Russians moved in. It was quite clear that for Russia, this was a red line. They were not going to let Georgia come into NATO. Now, everything between 2008 and 2014 was kind of quiet. Nothing really happened. But in 2014, of course, Abby, as, we, as you know, and we can talk about the Maidan coup d'etat that destroyed a government, the Yanukovych government, corrupt but democratically elected government that was basically saying we're between East and West Let's be neutral. We are neutral. We want to have good relations with the EU, but we want to have good relations with Russia. We don't want to take sides and we don't want NATO membership. That government was overthrown by a Nazi-led, and I mean it literally Nazi and neo-Nazi-led 
coup d'etat, which John McCain and Victoria Nuland, Republicans and Democrats, saluted as a great day for Ukrainian democracy. That's when everything shifts, because from then on, Russia then knows that Ukraine will be eventually admitted into NATO. Yeah, it became a fertile ground then for the beginning of the end, which was exactly the intent for the U.S.-backed operation there that led to the Nazi-led coup. And I wanted to point out a couple things to corroborate your point. I mean, just the fact that the NATO-Russia founding act on mutual relations back during the Clinton administration signed in 1997. I mean, that, that defining issue that was signed basically promised that NATO would not expand into Eastern Europe, not an inch. Um, you know, there was a classified memo released months prior to the invasion of Georgia um, sent directly to high profile U.S. officials, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, saying that this is going to create essentially in so many words, this is a WikiLeak cable that was released saying in so many words that this is going to cause an unpredictable and uncontrollable consequence that will seriously affect Russia's national security interests. This was years before what happened in 2014. And as you mentioned, I mean, the U.S. was not always hostile with Russia. Let's go back to this decade of time and how it transpired over the course of the war on terror. Um, you know, you mentioned the U.S. meddling in the Yeltsin elections, propping up Yeltsin, the looting of the post-Soviet economy. I mean, just the dire the dire state of affairs for Russian people, the hardships that they faced um, throughout the 90s. Meanwhile, Russia is dealing with their own version of the war on terror, using the Chechnyans to basically reach out to George W. Bush after 9-11, saying, we will help you invade Afghanistan or back, I guess, the, the war in Afghanistan, ironically, given their history with Afghanistan. But then you fast forward to the Iraq war where Putin said, look, we're not going to support this. This makes no sense which of course increased the, the tenuous nature of the relationship. Um, as you mentioned, 2014 was really a breaking point. Uh, talk about the circumstances that led Russia to step in to counter this extremely dire situation. I mean, Obama really was being pushed from all sides, the red line, you know, to put that no-fly zone in Syria, and Putin basically said, you know, we're going to step in here. Can you just explain that context really briefly before we get to the coup? Yeah, that's that's really important. And again, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned and came back to the point that the United States didn't always look unfavorably at the Russian government after the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. Remember, George W. Bush, he said that he looked into Putin's eyes and he could see his soul. And he was a good man. <laughs> Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but remember that he was like, it sounded like he was kind of like, like interested in Putin. I mean, he was like, really, he liked Putin. He was this like bud. He was going to be like their best friends forever. I mean, he could really, he had this connection to him. And then when, when Obama and then relations deteriorated in 2008, when, you know, after Russia moved into Georgia following that Bucharest summit where NATO said, we're going to move Georgia into NATO, which of course means moving nuclear weapons on Russia's border, right? Uh, or potentially doing that. So then relations deteriorated and then Obama wins the election. And, and the first thing he Obama does is he has his secretary of state, none other than Hillary Clinton, go and meet with Sergei Lavrov 
And remember, they brought that great big red button. Oh, yeah, the Acme, like, prop. <laughs> like <Y> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they said, let's press the big red reset button. And by the way, Lavrov was confused because the State Department is so incompetent that they didn't get the Russian translation for reset <laughs> properly. So he was, like, looking at the thing and trying to, what does this mean? I can't remember what the term was. But anyway, it wasn't reset. But the point was, Obama was trying to improve relations. And even remember when Obama was caught on that hot mic when he was talking, I think it was to Medvedev uh, at one point, he says, well, look, just wait till we get through the next American election and then we can improve relations again with Russia. That was obviously before the 2012 election. So Obama and Hillary Clinton at the beginning of the, of the first term of the Obama administration, again, looking to Russia. Russia is also included in the in the G7, the G7 become the G8. It's like the, the imperialist countries have decided to open their door and have this little junior partner come in, Russia. China's not included, even though, you know, the Chinese economy was taking off at that point. You know, Russia as a, quote, European power was brought in as well to the G7. So the G7 becomes the G8. So it looks like maybe things are getting sort of normal between the U.S. and Russia. And Russia's attitude, as you mentioned, they didn't like the war in Iraq. Putin didn't wasn't for it, but they didn't do that much to oppose it. And when it came to Libya in 2011, uh, both Russia and China abstained instead of using their veto when the U.S. pushed, pushed through, I think it was Re Resolution 1973, meaning that the U.N. was authorizing the use of force to protect Libyan civilians in the eastern part of Libya in Benghazi. Of course, that became the pretext, the, the, not the pretext, the, the fig leaf and the pretext for Britain, France, and the United States using NATO to destroy Libya. Uh, so we had all of these kind of, you know, appeasement policies on the part of Russia and, to a less, and also to, by China. And the U.S. was considering Russia to be sort of a partner of sorts. Everything changes, as you mentioned, then, Abby, in 2013 in 2014. So what happens? And this is so important. Instead of just thinking of Putin as the evil one in America or the West as the good guys, let's think about what actually happened. The U.S. destroys Libya in the war in 2011. The head of state, Gaddafi, is lynched in the streets. 70-year-old man is lynched in the streets. Hillary Clinton is caught on tape or wants to be on tape laughing, say, ha, ha, ha. We came, we saw, he died. And then a she and the hawks in the State Department, including Blinken and, you know, the current Jake Sullivan, the whole current crew, they're like on to Syria. Now Syria is next. And Obama and Clinton and John Kerry, who was then uh, who later becomes secretary of state after Clinton, they're all saying uh, that Assad must go. We're going to do to Syria what we just did to Libya. And now Syria is a long time ally, first of the Soviet Union and after the Soviet Union of Russia. It's a principal alliance. And at a certain point, and after looking at what the United States did with its UN authorization in Libya, which was to destroy the government, the, the Putin government decided to put its foot down and decided they weren't going to let the neocons in the US government destroy Syria as they had Libya and as they had Iraq. And by the way, in the last couple, in the last week, 
Putin is referring back to these as like very important, decisive moments in this evolution of the relationship and the evolution of his own thinking. So, so that's the real turning point. Russia enters the Syrian war and says, we will not allow Assad's government to be destroyed. Yes, we want to defeat ISIS, but you're not going to take over Syria as you did Libya and Iraq. And they win the Russian intervention along with the support of Hezbollah and Iranian-supported uh, militia forces. They turn the tide along, of course, with the Syrian Arab army, which was, even though it was majority Sunni, stuck with the government, the Assad government. They turn the tide. They, def they defeat the right-wing terrorists who are the allies of the United States and Saudi Arabia and Turkey. So that's a decisive moment. And that's the year before what happens in Maidan. Exactly. And the next year um, was the coup, of course, that ousted democratically elected Yanukovych, uh, led by far right forces, as you mentioned, literal neo-Nazi brigades, regiments that led a violent uprising. They were completely glorified, glorified by the Western media. Apparently, these Western media outlets did not learn even Vice News that was infamous for, you know, standing in front of these SS symbols on these tanks behind them and still uh, fast forward to the coverage today. And they are still glorifying the Azov Battalion and far right ultranationalist groups. It is just startling that these outlets, I guess, just don't care or haven't learned or feigning ignorance. I really can't explain that away. But the coup was, of course, a really formative moment in the uh, dissolving of the relations between Russia and the U.S. because you had officials like Victoria Nuland out there talking openly about how we have invested $5 billion in Ukrainian democracy, quote unquote, since, you know, I guess over the last decade or so. I mean, we all know what that's code for. That's code for fomenting regime change through organizations like the NED, USAID, in countries that we want people to rise up and overthrow their governments. Um, you had her, John McCain, on the ground meeting with these far-right insurgencies, uh, doing photo ops. I mean, it was quite right. over the top. Um, so it is not hyperbolic to say that this was a U.S.-backed operation. Um, you know, this coup happened. It, it was very intent to try to uh, throw a wrench in the relations that were between Ukraine and Russia. You mentioned, you know, abandoning that IMF loan in, in favor of the Russia loan. Uh, there was a lot that was going into that. At the time, of course, as the coup unfolded, we had the annexation of Crimea. Um, all of the heat on Russia today, basically blaming Russia today as you know being part and parcel of this operation of Russia meddling in U.S. democracy. It was really the beginning of a whole new wave of Russia phobia, of this narrative that became front and center, that Putin was this arch villain controlling aspects of U.S. society really projecting and deflecting away from what the U.S. had been doing for so long, Brian. Of course, I was in the middle of it being at Russia today. It was not, uh, it was a very uh, bizarre, surreal experience. Um, but, you know, one of the questions in the chat that I wanted to throw at you to, to guide us into this current situation which is, you know, several high-ranking ultranationalists rose to prominence after the coup, especially in the armed forces, um, you know, and I don't know where that went after that. And, and, and 
per, a person in the chat is asking, you know, how influential are the Nazi forces? Because this is a big talking point that we're seeing used by Putin that we can get into his speech and all that in a second. But the main point that's being peddled out there and repeated is that this is about the denazification of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, it is a, a valid point that Nazis were prominent in the coup and after the coup. But since then, we have seen another election. Zelensky took power in a democratic election since then. And he's a Jewish man. And there are a lot of Jewish citizens living in Ukraine. And it does seem like there is no nuance given. There's kind of a cartoonish depiction of this is a Nazi regime. And well, we just got to go take out this Nazi regime. So I guess comment on that before we get into the fighting in these other uh, regions and, and of course the invasion itself. Yeah, and I think it might be useful, Abby, you can you can decide to spend a little bit more time on on how Maidan actually unfolded and why it unfolded. Please. Uh, yeah, and then and then we could talk about the role of the the fascist wing because it wasn't the only wing. Uh certainly it wasn't the only wing in the protests going on in the center of Kiev, but we can talk about them because as you rightly mentioned as as people are putting in the chat Putin is now explaining the Russian invasion of Ukraine or the Russian uh military intervention there on the basis that it was it's going to demilitarize Ukraine and it's going to denazify Ukraine so these are the two of the main points that are used by Putin to explain or to justify the Russian military action but I want to go back to to what actually happened in Maidan, because I think it is important for, for people to understand and not have a cartoonish understanding of Ukraine or Ukrainian politics. Of course, Nazism and fascism that played an important role in Ukraine before World War, I mean, during World War II, where a section of Ukrainian society fought with the Nazis. And those people who are part of the far right today are putting up the, the banners of the fascist leaders of that time as, as if they're, they, they are the national heroes. They are the, the George Washingtons of, the, of their country. That's important. But to go back to how the protests started in Maidan. Maidan is the center, center square in Kiev. The European Union, not the United States, the European Union said to Yanukovych, who was this neutral government in in Kiev again as i said balancing between east and west said that they he wouldn't join nato they said to yanukovych if you're going to enter the eu then you got to do it right now and we're not going to bring you in as an eu member you can come in on what's called an eu association agreement which meant basically that ukraine would enter eu but under conditions of extreme economic austerity, like what was imposed on the people of Greece, but even worse. And Yanukovych said no to that agreement. He didn't say, no, I don't want to be in the EU. He said, this agreement is a bad agreement for Ukrainians. We're already poor. This will make us poorer. And at that moment, protests started in October and November and December of 2013. Now, at that time, Putin and the Russians, I think, were preoccupied with the Sochi Olympics because they, they were worried there were going to be protests at the Sochi Olympics. They were worried whether there's going to be disruption. There was a lot of struggle. They were distracted by the Olympics while the West started to pour in huge amounts of support for these protests 
against Yanukovych, seeing it as a geostrategic opportunity. The people who were coming to Maidan were mainly not fascists. They were mainly people who wanted to be part of Europe and Europe was giving this ultimatum to Yanukovych. It's either now or never. You, you accept this agreement, this austerity plan, or you're never coming in, then you're gonna be with Russia. A lot of West, Euro West Ukrainian people who look to Europe, who consider themselves you know, Eurocentric compared to being Russocentric, they didn't want the Yanukovych government to blow the opportunity. Then there were hard right elements who were also in those protests, like the right sector, like the Azov Brigade, like the other fascist parties. And during the whole time, you can see the EU and then eventually the United States. You mentioned Victoria Nuland, who had been Hillary Clinton's uh, personal press secretary when she became a secretary of state. And she's married to a leading neocon, the leader of the neocon movement in Robert the United Kagan. States, yeah. Robert Kagan. And she she then kind of takes over. She At that point, she's an assistant secretary of state under Clinton. She actually goes to Ukraine and she's in the square with the protesters. Now, this is a big deal for the protesters because now they feel the full backing of the U.S. government. And she's actually handing out cookies to them. And then you'll, there's a, on our radio show, on our podcast, The Socialist Program, which is also available on Breakthrough News, we, we played the tape of Victoria Newland talking to other members of the U.S. diplomatic entourage in Kiev right before the coup. And they're talking about who the next leaders of Ukraine should be. And one of them says, well, what about this guy who's in the far right? And when, what about this guy? And she said, no, no. And then the ambassador, the US ambassador says, well, the EU thinks it should be this. And she says, and pardon my language, she says, fuck the EU, it's gonna be Yats. It's gonna be Yats. Yats is gonna be the guy. Now Yats is Yatsenyuk, who is a pro-US sort of technocrat, financier guy, and they wanted him to be the new leader of Ukraine because he could connect more with, excuse me, with the United States. And he didn't have the, he wasn't tarnished by Nazism, right? So the coup happens, by the way, on February 21st, an agreement is signed. Germany's there. I think Poland's there. Russia's there. The United States is there. The opposition, including the mainstream opposition and the fascists and Yanukovych, they all there, they sign an agreement on February 21st. And the agreement is basically we agree to all the protesters demands. We're going to have early elections, meaning Yanukovych will probably lose and somebody who's even more pro-EU will win. There's going to be a devolution of political authority away from the center into the regions. That's helpful because Ukraine is a demographically divided country. And, and, the, and Yanukovych says yes and agrees to pull the cops out of Maidan. That's the agreement. And the next day, absent a police presence, the fascists storm the parliament, disperse it. The president flees for his life. Victoria Nuland, John McCain say, this is a great day for Ukraine. This is the greatest day for Ukraine. This Nazi-led coup d'etat. Think about January 6th. This was January 6th on steroids because it actually dispersed the parliament and seized the power. And then the new, now a government that was a transitional government under these far right fascist forces says, look, Russia is now banned as an official second language. They make it clear that they're a Russophobe, hostile regime. They say, we're gonna come into NATO. And that's when the battle in the Eastern part of Ukraine, what is Donetsk and Luhansk and also Crimea 
heats up because it's at that moment, it's at that moment that the people in the East realize that this government is going to be with NATO and it's going to be anti-Russia and anti-Russian. And an armed struggle starts in the East. And that's when Putin decides the Black Sea base, the Black Sea naval base that Russia has in Crimea, which is their biggest base, is not going to be a NATO base with nuclear weapons against Russia. So that's when Putin says, I'm permitting the referendum, which of course is stage managed by the Russian military to have a referendum in Crimea. But most of the people in Crimea want to be with Russia. They're mostly Russian oriented or Russian people or Russian speaking. And so they vote overwhelmingly in the referendum. And that's considered to be the invasion by Russia. So would that have happened? Would Crimea have happened if it hadn't been for the coup? Would the coup have happened if it wasn't for the fascists using their muscle? Would the coup have happened if the different international signatories had agreed to the February 21st compromise? None of this would have happened. I say to the American peace movement and to the American people, if you're upset and angry about a war in Ukraine, which you should be, you should say that this is the fault of Victoria Newland and John McCain and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and the, and the, and the State Department. The only thing that was different between then and now is President Barack Obama was a restraining force on the neocon forces within the U.S. government, because unlike what came later under Trump and Biden, Obama absolutely refused to send weapons to Ukraine after the coup because he knew that Russia would perceive that to be the beginning of the end for Russia, because it would mean that NATO was creating a de facto membership for Ukraine, even if it wasn't formally a member. That's kind of like an important part of this context. Right. And let's explain more thoroughly this fighting that's been ongoing since the coup. I mean, the toppling of the government didn't mark the end of the violence. The fighting continued until the invasion. So, it, you know, for people who are living in these disputed regions, which was Donetsk and Luhansk, that Donbass is, is central to, um, that fighting never stopped. I mean, I was shocked to learn that 14,000 people had died uh, since the coup in these regions, uh, that the Ukrainian military has been taking pretty severe action, uh, fighting the Russian-backed separatists, far-right nationalists fighting Russian-backed separatists in these regions, getting arms funneled to them by Russia and, of course, by the U.S. I mean, the U.S. government has been openly as well as covertly. I mean, I, I just saw a clip from Adam Schiff basically bragging about how we've used Ukraine to fight Russia over there, um, you know, so we don't have to fight them here. Yeah. I mean, bragging about the fact that we are using Ukraine for a proxy war to literally fight Russia and funneling millions of dollars in lethal weaponry that, of course, was crossing another red line. Then you see Biden you know, because of the amassing of Russian troops in this region, Biden taken, taking that other dramatic stance where he sent more weapons, the quote unquote lethal aid that was parroted uncritically from the media, um, anti-tank weapons, all of these things protested vehemently by Moscow. Let's talk about how this escalated the already fraught tensions, how it broke down the negotiations. But first, can you speak to um, the Nazi presence today in terms of their control in the government and armed forces? Well, the Ukrainian state is, is fundamentally a very weak entity. And in many ways, the right-wing paramilitaries 
have either been incorporated into the Ukrainian state, by right wing, I mean the fascists or neo-fascists, have either been incorporated, some of them have said, we no longer need to be revolutionaries, as they put it, uh, we can now work with the state, and, if, and, and in fact have been incorporated into uh, the Ukrainian military and into Ukrainian police forces. So that's real, that's, that's absolutely real. The political position of the fascist forces has weakened in the last couple of years, however. Uh, Ukraine in the main is not Nazi. It's not a pro-Nazi country. It's not a pro-fascist country. And in the 2019 parliamentary elections, the, uh, the political forces who formed the United Right Bloc, which are the fascist forces, they got about 2.1% of the vote, 2.1% of the parliamentary vote which doesn't mean that they can't be impactful. And certainly for the people in Eastern uh, part of Ukraine where they have launched this, you know, Russophobe war, uh, there's been a lot of casualties. And some of the fascist units have, fu have, have functioned as rogue units, even if the Ukrainian military isn't shelling, they don't have complete uh, discipline over all of these militia units. And so there's, they're conducting their own fight. And of course, for them, they want the war with Russia. They wanted the war with Russia. They wanted it because if there was a war with Russia, the West will take their side. And if they take their side, that means they accelerate into positions of power. Now, they also know that the United States isn't, even though it fought Nazi Germany and against Mussolini's Italy in World War II, the United States government policy isn't historically an anti-fascist policy when it comes to <laughs> foreign policy. I mean, the U.S. will work with any force, including the most right-wing fascist forces. We see this throughout Latin America. The School of the Americas at Fort Benning, named after the Confederate general, Fort General Benning, uh, they trained the fascists in Latin America. They killed the left. They killed the workers and the peasants and the communists and the socialists and the people who just wanted Latin America to be independent. So the fascists know the U.S. is willing to play ball with fascism as long as they do America's bidding. In this case, it's been very useful to keep the conflict in the eastern part of Ukraine going because it provides a, a position of endless militarization and then Ukraine is importing more and more weapons into Ukraine, which are being directed largely against Russian-speaking people or Russian people who live in the eastern part of Ukraine. But from the point of view of the Russian government, all of those weapons coming into Ukraine, as it becomes a de facto member, not a formal member, but a de facto member of NATO, means that these weapons will never be taken out. And we, I mean, we'll talk about this more too, but in the, in the recent months, Turkey has sent advanced drones. Turkey, of course, is the eastern flank of NATO, has sent advanced drones to the Ukrainian government. That wouldn't have happened without the U.S. giving the green light to it. And those drones, drone weapons are very sophisticated technologies now. And they're hitting their Russian targets, either people in the east or even Russian targets inside of Russia and I think it's been very shocking to the Putin administration how all of these advanced weapons are coming in. Well, you know, it also happens that it comes two years, three years after the U.S. under Trump arbitrarily canceled the INF Treaty. And that is 
you know, there are two big treaties. I This is a bit of a digression, Abby, but I think it might as well mention them for people since we're going down all of these historical routes. The U.S. canceled the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 2002. Uh, Putin at that time said this will be a game changer. But then in 2019, canceled the treaty signed by Gorbachev and Reagan in 1986 called the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Range Treaty. That meant that that treaty barred the United States or Russia of putting uh, intermediate range nuclear missiles that had a flight of three to 600 miles and could reach their target in under 10 minutes in any of the areas close to each other's territory. That's what was happening in the 1980s. That's what started the anti-nuclear movement in Europe, the freeze movement, was the U.S. had put all these short range missiles that could hit Soviet targets in six minutes all over Europe. And the Europeans went into the streets and said, look, you're, get, you're gonna use our country as a staging ground for a nuclear war against the Soviets, but you're not gonna die in Chicago. You're not gonna die in Washington, we're gonna die. And that's why the Europeans luckily went into the streets and built this independent anti-war movement that said no. And Gorbachev and Reagan signed that treaty in 1986. And that was a principal part of that architecture that we talked about in the beginning, that Cold War architecture that created equilibrium, the U.S. under Trump canceled it. And that meant the Russians are looking at that and they're saying, okay, they're going to place those weapons at the Ukrainian border with Russia, which is a 1,200 mile long border. Those missiles will reach our, their targets in less than 10 minutes. We can't defend against them. And that means we'll never have a day of peace. We'll always be under a threat that we can't really Re, uh, refute or rebut or, or push back against. And that these are the red lines that Putin has been talking about. But again, if you look at Maidan as the turning point, because it means that Ukraine, which had been neutral up until 2014, is now coming into NATO, becoming a de facto a part of NATO. And then the Ukrainian government launches this endless war against the people in the East. And by the way, Russia also contributed to that war. And I think this is important. I think that as long as that war continued in a formal sense, as long as there was a territorial dispute in the eastern part of the country, NATO formal membership would be prohibited. Uh, NATO rules suggest, uh, not suggest, insist that any country that has a border dispute on its territory can't enter NATO. So as long as there was a conflict in the East, uh, that meant in a formal way, NATO couldn't, uh, Russia could, uh, Ukraine could not enter NATO. Uh, and also it meant that the Russian government had its own ability to have some influence inside of the struggle in NATO, inside, inside of Ukraine. The, and also there was, a, there was a pressure from Russian people in Russia. They were like, these are the people in the Donbass. Uh, until 1922 or 1924, when the Soviet Union was created, the Donbass was Russian. I mean, other parts of Ukraine were Russia too, but the Donbass are Russian people. And why are you letting Ukrainian Nazis who killed so many of us and who who's, we spent so many millions of lives to defeat these Nazis, why are you letting them shell our brethren uh, in, in Donbass? So I think Putin was under extreme pressure to, to not abandon the Russian-speaking population in the eastern part of Ukraine. So there's this 
element of Nazism and the struggle against Russian speaking people. It's complex. It's got a number of different factors, but certainly the public pressure on Putin to do something to defend uh, Russian people in eastern part of Ukraine can't be discounted. And of course, all of this led to the negotiations completely failing. Um, and it all brought us to what happened just days ago, Brian, where Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, sending hundreds, if not thousands of troops in, launching hundreds of missile attacks on cities across the country. Um, I have to say just personally, as an anti-war activist, I care about war everywhere. And my government has been bombing countless countries, brutalizing populations, subjugating tens of millions of people across the planet for decades. I think that this is a criminal act, what Putin has done, and I do have moral problems with it. I think war is horrific and civilians needlessly die and suffer every time war is carried out. Uh, it kills soldiers on both sides that don't have to die. It, it just breeds hostility and resentment between two countries that have these historic roots and ties. I think war can only be accepted as an absolute last resort. And I'm not afraid to say that while I understand the central role of the U.S. in creating this tinderbox, I still condemn any illegal invasion of another country. And I think as leftists, we shouldn't be afraid to say this is wrong. This is a violation of international law that a standard of law needs to be applied equally to every country in the world. And I think that's consistent with progressive values uh, to be repelled by bombs and troops entering a country when it absolutely did not have to happen. And while I fully recognize and understand Russia's security concerns, I am afraid that this is going to escalate tensions, that this action could lead to a potentially catastrophic conflict. And you know, there's this weird tendency, and I think maybe it has to do with just this glorification of war, the culture that militarism has baked into American society. And especially as anti-imperialists, I think that justifiably so. I reflexively tend to defend countries that are under attack from the U.S. empire. But I think it's important to not reflexively take the PR of a huge capitalist country. I mean, basically using this line of denazification, right? I think it is very clear to me, at least, that this is not necessarily about denazifying Ukraine. It's about Russia stepping in and saying, we're not going to fucking take this anymore. We are going to assert ourselves on the world stage. And it's okay to have criticisms of that, uh, you know, attitude and policy. Um, and to just not kind of blindly have this celebratory stance that this is all good and we need to, const you know, we need to just reflexively defend what Russia is doing. I feel like it, there has to be a nuanced discussion where we give oxygen to many facets on the left. And this includes people in the communist parties in Russia. It includes leftists who I'm sure are protesting the invasion in the streets right now. Um, and and I want to get into that too, Brian, but I also want to get into what Putin's speech actually detailed. His speech announced this military operation. And it was very surreal because it's very hard to find the transcript in Western media. Of course, they just pick out the facets that are the most bellicose and belligerent, talking about how we're nuclear armed power and we're going to retaliate with our full nuclear arsenal if anyone tries to impede what we're doing. Of course, those are picked up and put on the front pages. But what you don't see are all of the experts excerpts about NATO that legitimize what everything that you're saying and what Putin has used to justify this. 
And it also really omits this entire bizarre anti-communist underpinning of what he's doing. Uh, so can you speak to this virulent focus on anti-communism? I mean, he talks about the Soviet policy of self-determination, Lenin and the Bolsheviks and the Russian empire under the czar. I guess just walk us through this this speech and also, you know, the division and the space that we need to understand the, the difference of opinions on the left um, in this instance. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to address an, an, all of these issues. In fact, including what the orientation should be of the of the U.S. anti-war movement, or for myself, Marxist and socialist movement. Um, you know, I want to be able to have enough time to be able to address that um, because I feel that uh, the while this is a terrible war because as you said, it's there's so much death and destruction that happens in any war. And also the fact that Russians are invading Ukraine and Russians are killing Ukrainians and Ukrainians killing Russians when they were one people, they were the Soviet people uh, working together against fascism, uh, you know, up until the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, it can't be more tragic and more distressing. And I think to lightheartedly become a cheerleader uh, or or think that this is just a wonderful event uh, is sort of a, a, it's a disgrace actually in terms of a, a, a correct understanding of the history. I do believe that the United States is responsible for the crisis. And I do believe the United States presented to Putin and to the Russian establishment a set of options that the Russians had made clear were unacceptable and that under no circumstances were they going to allow Ukraine to be a staging ground for advanced nuclear missiles against Russia. So Russia, I think for the past few months has been saying, let's negotiate. These are our red lines. We're really serious. We're amassing 150,000 troops to show you how serious we are. And in each and every instance, the U.S. said no to that, where it would have been so easy to say yes. What would have been wrong with Ukraine having been a neutral country? So I want to just say I really fully, while I don't support uh, Russia's in, uh, invasion into Ukraine, I do want to emphasize, especially for Americans, how how the United States government, the government that speaks in our name, is fully responsible for this getting to this point. It didn't need to be this place, which doesn't mean Putin and the Russian government uh, don't have responsibility as well. And we, I want to get come back and talk about that. But to your question about Putin's speech, it was an extremely revealing speech. He made it February 21st. He made he's made three speeches, I believe, this week now. February 21st, which is the, the day before the coup, eight years to the day before the coup that changes everything in, in Ukraine. And he gives basically a historic explanation for why it's, a, it's sort of a, a grievance. It's a long grievance about Russia's relationship with Ukraine. And he basically blames Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks for the current crisis and for the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which is phenomenal, given the fact that the man who appointed Putin to be his successor, Boris Yeltsin, who was a capitalist counter-revolutionary, was, was in fact 
the person who literally dissolved the Soviet Union on December 16th, 1991, when he signed a decree illegally and arbitrarily ending the union. He was the president of Russia at that time. So, so Putin doesn't condemn Boris Yeltsin, the capitalist counter-revolutionary. Instead, he, he, condemns, he condemns Lenin. So, and, and, Lenin's, and, the, and Lenin's sin, according to Putin, is twofold. One, that Ukraine was created as a, as a separate republic by the Treaty of 1922 that forms the Soviet Union in 1924 in the Constitution. So there's a treaty signed between a few republics. There's four at the time, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. Um, they formed the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And in that constitution that ratifies that in 1924, it's also stipulated that each of the republics has the right to secede, meaning the right to be self-determining, the right of self-determination, the right to leave the union if they feel the union is not, you know, doing what it needs to do for the people of that republic. So Lenin insisted on this right of self-determination because he said, our problem in building socialism in the, for in the territories of the former, former Russian empire is great Russian chauvinism, meaning that Russia, which was the prison house of oppressed minorities and minority peoples and ethnicities and nationalities, cultivated the equivalent of kind of a white supremacy against the other non-Russian peoples. And Lenin said to build solidarity between Ukrainian and Georgian workers or the workers of the Baltics or the workers of any of the former Soviet uh, Russian empire, we have to show we're, we're past that. We're, we're past that. And as a matter of fact, not only are we past it, but your connection or federation or union with us, with us Russians, will be based on your right to divorce, your right to say the marriage isn't working. You know, the right of self-determination, the right of secession is for republics what the right of divorce is for couples. It means at a certain point, if you feel the relationship isn't working, you can leave. If all the power is one side of the relationship and there's no power, no ability for the other side to leave, then it's not a real marriage, it's a subjugation. And Lenin said the only way to build international solidarity between the various working classes of different ethnicities and nationalities is to guarantee the right of self-determination. And, and Putin demagogically says, this is, if you wanna call Ukraine anything, you could call it v Vladimir Lenin's Ukraine. He said, because by creating Ukraine and allowing it to be independent from Russia, uh, that meant that they sowed the seeds for the later dissolution of the Soviet Union. And he said, basically, this is a theft by the Bolsheviks of Russian land from Russia. So that's important because when we heard that speech on February 21st, we in the PSL and in the left, we were like, what the hell? We've never fully heard Putin develop his anti-Leninist positions so fully. But obviously, Putin, I mean, Putin says Lenin made a mistake at Brest-Litovsk, meaning when they signed the treaty, this is part of his speech, he said, he gave away Ukraine to Germany. He gave Ukraine to Germany the treaty that was signed in March 1918 between the Russian revolutionary government and the German empire uh, in 1918 at Brest-Litovsk, allowed Ru Germany to basically annex Ukraine. 
But Lenin's position at that time was, we had a revolution. We no longer have an army. We're being invaded by 14 imperialist armies. We can't fight a war against Germany, so we'll sign a treaty. It's a humiliating treaty, but we don't have any option. We can't do it. And, and so Putin demagogically denounces Lenin for having signed the treaty, which was absolutely necessary for the Russians to do. He also denounces Lenin for having a position of revolutionary defeatism. It's clear that revolutionary defeatism meant that the Bolsheviks took the position, we prefer the defeat of our own czarist government or bourgeois government in an international imperialist war than its victory because our real enemy is at home. Our real enemy are the capitalists here. They're not in Germany or France or Britain or the United States. We're fighting the class struggle here. And he also recommended that the German comrades and the French comrades and the British comrades and the American comrades take the same position. Everybody take the position of not defending their own imperialist bourgeoisie in the war. So Putin denounces Lenin for revolutionary defeatism. He says that's unpatriotic. It gave away Russian land. He denounces him for Brest-Litovsk. He denounces him for creating Ukraine. And he denounces him for the right of self-determination. That can only be understood by anybody who's paying attention to history and politics that Putin's appeal uh, in, uh, the day before he's about to invade Ukraine is not to the left. It's not to the workers and to the peasants of Ukraine. This is an appeal to the Russian right. And I think it's really important for the left, including the left that sees NATO as the aggressor, to not follow Putin, not to put Putin on a pedestal, not to follow this anti-communist uh, uh, core sort of Russian chauvinist orientation towards non-Russian peoples. I mean, he says other things that are not chauvinistic, but nonetheless, he was making this really unique historical argument for why Ukraine could be reincorporated into Russia as it had been under the czar. And then the invasion happens and it's clear what's the purpose of the invasion? What is Putin actually trying to do? He's trying to make it one, we have to be very clear about this. Putin is trying to make it clear to NATO, Ukraine will never be part of NATO. And that's that's obviously what he's saying. Two, he says he's going to denazify the country, meaning the fascists who are attacking the people in the East are going to be captured and they're going to be put on trial or they're going to be killed. That will be popular in Russia. That will be a very uh, popular talking point in Russia. Unfortunately, some people in the West think that all of Ukraine is Nazified, which is not true. That's not what Ukraine is. That's not a correct, objective, accurate assessment. And the other thing is that he's signaling to the West, and this is very important, that the period of appeasement between Russia and the West that's existed since 1991, when they appeased them on Iraq, they appeased them on Libya, you know, they stopped appeasing on Syria, but now the appeasement has ended. He said, basically, we wanted to have a negotiated settlement, but you said, no, we're done with negotiating. We're now going to show you that Russia is a great power. And so that's, that's why this has changed global politics, because it's the reemergence of Russia under a bourgeois leadership, demonstrating that it is a major world power and willing to use military force against NATO or NATO-inspired machinations. That's 
nothing like this has happened in world politics since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Exactly. And I want to get to some of the audience questions in a second, but I wanted to just dovetail off of what you're saying to just talk about the disgusting Eurocentrism at play across the Western media. I mean, it is quite disgusting that everyone lines up in outrage when Europeans are being attacked, yet in the same week, uh, Yemenis, Somalis have also been bombed. Um, this is by these same Western forces who are out Syria? there. Syria? Yep, Syria pretending to be the moral arbiter of everything that's good and holy. Um, and it's just disgusting because it really reveals this is a conscious decision to keep these wars going and being fueled by the worst partnerships on earth, Saudi, Israel. I mean, the list goes on and on. Then you get to the fog of war. And apologies if I sound differently. My computer was dying, so I had to take out the mic. But then you have this fog of war, Brian, where it's actually really hard to discern what is going on on the ground in Ukraine. Everywhere you look, there's a discrepancy in casualty count and troop deployment and targets. Even the videos and pictures that we're seeing, I can't trust yet because they've already had to issue retractions saying, oh, no, that's from Israel bombing Gaza. Oh, no, this is from a video game, actually. Uh, it's quite ludicrous. And so it really is hard to even figure out uh, what to think as of yet because it is so convoluted. You have talking points coming out there saying the Ukrainian army is basically falling apart. They look super weak. They're forcing people to conscript. Um, and basically Sky News is hosting a live workshop on how to build a Molotov, Molotov cocktail. You cannot make this up. Meanwhile, Palestinians are terrorists for throwing rocks at tanks. And I almost wonder, is this some sort of head fake? Like the Ukrainian army is so weak that now we need to pour more money and, and weapons in. And in fact, that's what Biden just did today. He just announced that he's sending another 350 million in, I think, in weapons instead of seizing everything and saying, we need to negotiate right now. We need to take this seriously. We need to sit down at the table. And instead, they're just funneling more money and weapons into a very, very volatile situation. And, you know, I just, I just can't, really go without saying this. I think that there were several other diplomatic options for Russia. Like I could see if, if the paperwork was about to be signed on the NATO alliance and Ukraine was about to step into NATO, that was not happening. Was, this was not imminent in terms of if Russia didn't invade today, they would have joined NATO tomorrow. Like diplomacy could have been pursued on the grounds of maybe lobbying other NATO states like Germany to potentially take Russia's side. And let's just say, let's just give Russia the benefit of the doubt. Okay, they wanted to go in and protect these Russian areas from the insurgencies that were being fueled by the U.S. Well, they didn't stop there, right? As we know, they went beyond um, the uh, independent regions and they now are attempting, it looks like, to go full steam ahead, taking the capital and potentially pursuing regime change across the whole country, depending on how this all plays out. So for me, I feel like, you know, if Russia's big concern was stopping Ukraine from joining NATO, I feel like this was not an imminent enough threat to justify this. And certainly not all options were exhausted here. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that I think it's the political goal or the military political goal of the Russian military intervention is to create a new government in Ukraine. And I think up until now, they've been demanding that Ukraine be neutral. But if, if, in fact, Russia selects the new government in Ukraine, uh, 
it won't be neutral. It will be part of a Russian sphere of influence in that part of the world. And the problem I think for Russia, and I don't, I don't know what the calculation is. Putin said, we're not going to occupy the land. But when you carry out this large scale military intervention and want to create a new pro-Russian government or a government that swears it won't join NATO, how do you enforce that without occupation? So this is this this is like an unknown right now in terms of the military factor. Like, and if the if Ukrainian resistance, and I agree with you, the fog of war, either just because it is the fog of war or because it's deliberately created, we can't really we don't really know what's going on, and it's really important for people in the left, in the anti-war movement, who are independent voices against their own government's imperialist uh, orientation and policy and structures, not to, not to think we know things that we don't know, not to become experts and profound you know, speakers about that, which we have very scant information. So we don't really know. But if, the, if Ukraine's resistance were to continue, and this isn't a quick rollover by the Russian military, uh, this thing could escalate very rapidly into a regional or global conflict. I mean, we're, we're, when we talk about this is a new day in global politics, this is a new day that could lead to a kind of crisis that the world and certainly Europe hasn't seen since the late 1930s. People should not minimize the absolute danger. That's why I think it's so for Americans, especially, we have to say to our government or the government that speaks in our name, your reckless, provocative, aggressive actions have brought the world possibly to the brink of World War III, which doesn't mean you have to then endorse every military move or political statement of the country that the United States or NATO are in conflict with. You don't have to do that. We can retain an objective faculty. But if if the if the goal of the of the Russian military is to carry out regime change, which it seems like that's what the goal is, the goal is to have in power in Kiev a government that's committed to Russia or to not entering NATO. That means this is a long term operation that we're just at the beginning of. The only way that could conceivably end would be as if there's an emergency. A, a summit whereby the United States and NATO powers, but it's really the United States. NATO, NATO is not really a. It's the Americans. If the United States sat down with the Russians and said, "Look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to you leave right now. Uh, we're going to, you know, devolve authority to different regions in Ukraine. We're going to absolutely go along with your idea that." that NATO, Ukraine will, will not be moved into a NATO sphere of influence. It doesn't need formal membership. NATO was becoming a de facto member. Ukraine was, Ukraine was becoming a de facto member of NATO without formal membership. But the U.S. could stop right now and say, let's do that. Is there a will, a desire, or the courage within the U.S. government to say, under the circumstances of a Russian military offensive in Ukraine, that they want to sit down and make concessions to Russia? I don't think so. I don't see Biden or any of these hardliners from either party. And, and it's not just the whole, the whole American political scene is hardliner. Uh, I don't see them doing it. That's why 
This is such a dangerous moment. We don't know how it ends. We don't know how this ends. But we do know that the Russians have decided that they're done negotiating. That's what makes this. And again, I just want to emphasize for people, don't be glib about this. Take a serious look at what's happened. The Putin government in Russia has decided that the era of appeasement with the West has ended and they're going to use military force to recreate a buffer zone for what they think is necessary for Russian security. And that means that I, the, when you look at the cost benefit outside of the war, you know, you, you mentioned just the horror of war, the loss of life, the loss of human solidarity, the awfulness of war. But just think about some of the other costs to the Russians. Germany and France were not supporting the United States, including Ukraine into NATO. Germany was not for it at all. The German people in the main don't want this. Europeans who know what war is like because they had World War I and World War II, they don't want war. So the idea that this invasion will give Russia more security remains to be seen. I mean, it might if there's some new negotiations, or it could mean that Russia has lost the possible support of Germany and France, even though it was a very weak support. But I, I felt that the Russians were kind of winning the information war in the last couple months because the world didn't want this to happen. And the world was sort of confronted with the choice. Do you really want to militarize Ukraine and risk World War III or not? I think the cards that the Russians had that they were playing with, they've played them now. And right now they're being just condemned. In Europe today, uh, most of the left is protesting against NATO and against Russia. There are different parts of the left. There's the, the old CP uh, left, which says, like led by the KKE in Greece and some of the other main parties, the historic parties of the world communist movement, they now say, look, Russia is an imperialist country, and these are two imperialisms fighting each other. Ironically, the Trotskyists or semi-Trotskyists, like the Cliffites who were around the ISO, they've always had the position that the Soviet Union was an imperialist country even before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they now say this is two imperialisms fighting each other. Uh, other people have taken more nuanced positions. Uh, from my point of view and from the point of view of PSL, and certainly my point of view as a longtime uh, Marxist and socialist, I don't view Russia as an imperialist, a part of the imperialist world. I think that when I think if, if, if Russia had been admitted into the imperialist club, they would have been glad to join at a certain point. But that's not how the U.S. views Russia. The U.S. has viewed Russia since 2000 and really since 1997, that if Russia gets back on its feet at all, and the, U and, and the U.S. obviously wouldn't incorporate, Russia asked, why don't you incorporate us into NATO? But by the way, the Soviets asked that too in 1954, before they formed the Warsaw Pact. The, uh, the Stalin had just died. The Soviets said, look, we'll join NATO and we support the reunification of Germany in 1954, to which the U.S. at that time said, no, you're not coming into NATO. And uh, by the way, we're going to incorporate West Germany into NATO. So that was when the Soviets formed the Warsaw Pact. Now, 
now the reason the reason the United States can't treat Russia as an equal major power, even though it's a big country, isn't because Russia has this competition with American imperialism for markets and and raw materials and and vying with U.S. imperialism all over the world for influence. It's that's not it. If the United States treats Russia as an equal because it's now a capitalist-led country, then Germany and other countries in Europe will gravitate in the direction of Russia. They are the natural trading partners and political partners, especially Germany. And so the U.S. fears the loss of its hegemony that it was that established after World War II with the creation of the UN, the creation of the IMF, the World Bank, the Bretton Woods Agreement that made the dollar the world currency. The US tried to create a unipolar world then in 1945. Russia was the Soviet Union. It was a socialist government. It didn't have colonies. It wasn't part of the world imperialist system. It got basically destroyed as an entity and is getting back on its feet on a capitalist rather than socialist basis. But that doesn't mean that there should be equivalency between Russia and the US, France, Britain, and, and, and the other imperialist countries. In fact, it's precisely because Russia's not in the imperialist camp that it can gravitate under pressure from US imperialism in the direction of the People's Republic of China, which is led by a communist party, gravitate in the direction of supporting Iran, supporting Cuba, supporting Venezuela, supporting Nicaragua. In other words, it's even though it's a bourgeois country, it, because it's not in the imperialist club, it, it is being pushed in the direction of the more progressive independent governments, not for ideological or political reasons, but for reasons of national self-interest. Right. And I think that addresses one of the questions in the chat about why didn't Russia join NATO? Well, I think, as you just elucidated, that they would have if they were invited. Uh -huh. This is a strategic encroachment purposefully for that goal. Brian, I wanted to add to your point by just stating the national defense strategy clearly states that, quote, their principal priority is to counter Russia and China as competitors. And the way to do that is sustained investment in lethal force. Pretty dystopian the way that this is laid out in national security documents. I think that people give Putin a little too much credit sometimes as he's this you know, brilliant 5D chess operator. <laughs> you certainly hear stuff like that coming from Trump and others that this is just some brilliant strategy that he's gamed out, you know, for years and years. Um, I think that to your point, this is a very volatile situation and we just simply don't know how this is going to pan out. We shouldn't act very glib about this, acting like this is a one and done type thing that Russia is just punking the NATO in the US and that Ukraine's going to immediately fold. I, I mean, I just don't think that we should look at anything that way. Um, and I don't think it's as simple as that because we simply have no idea how this is going to evolve. Russia could very certainly be bogged down in fighting the insurgency that's been very well trained and backed by the CIA. Um, and of course, NATO and the U.S. can certainly respond in a very reckless way that essentially brings the official start of World War III. Um, what we do know also is that this legitimates like the very worst policies and people in the U.S. <laughs> like that that's aside from the point, though, <laughs> that have been lying to us for decades. Like now they have this whole new credibility that we're going to have to fight. But that's aside from the point. I think the main point that I want to get to now is the issue of unipolarity, as you've been talking about. 
and how it has been wavering in recent years and how now we're facing a precipice um, where the world is going to be changed moving forward. Finally, a big power has stood up and said, we're not going to take this anymore. And they've basically moved militarily uh, to assert that that new road, that new fork in the road. A lot of people are saying that this is good, Brian. This is good because you have this counterweight officially standing against the U.S. This profound shift is taking place that is going to benefit the world in a positive way, that no matter what the outcome here um, is, that Russia asserting itself on the global stage will inevitably actually prevent the cataclysmic war that would have happened come NATO join, I'm sorry, come Ukraine join NATO. So let's talk about that. Is it good that unipolarity has been challenged? And do you agree that this act will prevent a potentially bigger war in the future? Um, super important question, because I hear all the time people who hate U.S. imperialism and the unipolar world where the U.S. could you know, try to destroy government after government after government, sanction them, you know, impose draconian economic sanctions so that even if it wasn't occupying or bombing, they were still killing the people and, and ruining whole countries, making their economy scream. People want an option. They want, they're thinking like, that's the unipolar world. What we need is the multipolar world. And I have to say, as a Marxist, and as a Leninist, I think this is a very superficial understanding of world politics and a superficial understanding of the historical dyna dynamics for the larger movements for peace and for justice. I mean, we had a multipolar world uh, all the way up until World War II. What did it bring us? The multipolar world brought us World War I. The multipolar world brought us World War II. I mean, if you go back to the Berlin Conference of 1884, all the imperialists sat together and they took a map of Africa and they divided it up amongst themselves. And with the exception of Ethiopia, in 18 years, every form of African self-governance was, was, was extinguished. And so that was where the imperialists were working together. So there was multipolar imperialist entered a, a multipolar world where they decided to work together. But then they had their own contradictions within the imperialist capitalist system because each economy kept producing more and more and more, had more capital to export, needed more markets. And eventually, because the entire world was already colonized, the only way for the multipolar world uh for a capitalist a country to thrive in a multipolar world was to take from some of the other imperialists. And that's what made World War I inevitable. Please read the book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Vladimir Lenin. We reproduced it and, and we, we also made a, a century long sort of commentary that is the first part of our book called Imperialism in the 21st Century. We took what Lenin wrote because it's still valid but the essence of it is completely valid, but things have changed. And so we wanted to talk about the things that have changed and how, if anything, the world situation requires an amendment to Lenin's thesis. But again, we agree that under capitalism and in the imperialist era, 
the, the inevitability of war demonstrates itself over and over and over again. And the only solution is not multipolarity. The only solution is socialism. The only solution is to reorganize the economy so that instead of endless expansion on the basis of capitalist competition that pits different nation states against each other for markets or colonies or semi-colonies or spheres of influence, that we go back to the Marxist thesis that workers of the world should actually unite against their own capitalists. We don't want them to be uh, separate from and independent from the other capitalists and pursuing their own independent capitalist interests. And then we can say, oh, look, there's alternatives in the world. Those alternatives will lead to ruination. They lead to the inevitability of war. Now, of course, the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, you know, sort of did away with America's plans for a unipolar world after World War II. But it wasn't a multipolar world then. It was a bipolar world. Bipolar meaning there were two centers, and one of the centers was based on socialism. The socialist countries didn't have colonies. They didn't have neo-colonies. They weren't driven by the capitalist mode of production to go to war endlessly. And in fact, they were a deterrent to war. So the the non-unipolar nature of the post-World War II era shouldn't be characterized as multipolarity, but a bipolarity, but even more important than the fact that there were two anchors was that one of the anchors was based on the socialist system. So multipolarity is not the answer. The only answer to the inevitability of war, which includes World War III, which will be a nuclear war, is for us to change our own governments, to have radical transformations at home, and to, and, to, and to recognize that in order for that to happen, we have to have independent socialist movements. How can we make radical change in America? By saying Vladimir Putin is our leader, that what he does in the Ukraine is the, our source of inspiration? I mean, that's ridiculous. We have to fashion a movement in the United States that exposes the role of the Pentagon and imperialism and U.S. machinations and the hardliners in both parties and say, they speak in our name, but they're not us. We are the working class. We are the poor. We are the, the unrepresented, the unspoken for in, in society. We have to fight the battle of ideas against bourgeois nationalism and imperialist patriotism and build internationalism and human solidarity between workers and oppressed people here and in other parts of the world. But not to look for multipolarity as the solution, because indeed, Unipolarity will end. It is ending. We see it's ending right now. It'll end in very different forms. The American empire is too overstretched to maintain this fantasy of unipolarism, but simply having other centers of power is not the solution. The solution is indeed socialism because it's a system that doesn't require war because it's not based on competition. It's based on human cooperation between people at home and people all over the world. Well said, yeah, especially since these uh, forces that are in the multipolar world are also anti-communist, um, you know, and uh, I encourage people to read the PSL statements. I I liked a lot of what they had to say, and I think it's important to quote one of them, which says the role of the U.S. anti-war movement is not to follow the lines of countries in conflict with U.S. imperialism, to, but to present an independent program of peace and solidarity and anti imperialism, which is exactly what you're pointing out, Brian. And I think that we know that as people in the anti-war movement 
our job is to highlight the focus on what our government is doing, what its role is in facilitating and stage managing this crisis. Um, at the same time, a lot of average people are watching the corporate media, right? That's all they really know is they're watching this unfold. They're outraged at the invasion of Ukraine. They're repelled by war. We need to be reaching out to those people and saying, yes, this is wrong, but we're Americans. Do you live in a NATO, in a NATO country? Do you live in America? Our central role is to fuel that outrage into pressuring our own government to de-escalate tensions and to pull back NATO forces in these areas. Talk about why disbanding NATO is such a crucial demand that anti-war activists need to generate. And also just any more elaboration on this independent program to use to galvanize the left um, in an international sense. Right. The, the NATO is foundationally an offensive military alliance. It was designed to stop the spread of socialism. It was designed to make Western Europe basically under the complete subjugation of American imperialism. Uh, American imperialism, in fact, revived Nazism in, 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 or Nazis uh, in, in many, many different sectors of West Germany. And of course, used Nazis to build the U.S. space program, the Operation Paperclip. People should check that out. 1,600 uh, Nazis were brought to the United States. It's not an anti-fascist alliance. It's an anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-worker alliance. And we can see that it's wars in Afghanistan, it's wars in Libya, it's wars against Yugoslavia. These are offensive operations. And the, the United States, the people of the United States need to stand together and say no to NATO. The only reason NATO expanded after the collapse of the Soviet Union was not to keep West Europeans safe from the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was gone. So the only reason it expanded to the East was to completely dominate Eastern and Central Europe and make it an American dominated neo-colony. And at the same time, because America is addicted to war, it's capitalist system. The US capitalism is so addicted to war, so hyper addicted to, uh, to militarism and so addicted to a military industrial complex as a stabilizing force in, in US capitalism, it actually incentivizes war. And then the idea that any country, be it China, be it Iran, be it Russia, can actually be free, can be independent, can be strong enough as a global or regional player that it can determine its own destiny. The Americans view that as an existential threat because it's like the mafia. They say, well, if this country can show that it's neutral, that it's independent, that it's not following the empire, that might suggest to others that they too could be independent. The, the idea of being independent is independent, not communist even, but just independent is considered uh, a great danger by the US, which is following the logic of gangsterism, which is the logic of contemporary empire. So we have to say no to NATO, but NATO in a way is also just in a way as a symptom. The real disease is American capitalism. The US capitalism, it's so rich and it got rich off the, the unpaid labor of enslaved, millions of enslaved African or African descendant people. It got rich off of the genocide and theft of indigenous land. It got rich off of the colonization of Latin America and other parts of the world. It's a very rich country, and yet half the people in this country, uh, according to the Poor People's Campaign, live 
either in poverty or near poverty. Uh, the number of trillionaires grew and their wealth uh, increased by 30% during the time of, the, of COVID-19, while 60 million workers lost their jobs. I mean, we have to fight here against a system of capitalism which breeds injustice, lives off of inequality, and promotes war abroad as a characteristic feature, not as a mistake uh, by this or that politician. So our struggle really has to be to, be, to fight for peace means to fight holistically against all of the manifestations of American capitalism. And the true victims of any war, Brian, of course, are the working class of these respective countries. And that's who's gonna suffer and needlessly die. Um, Russia, Ukraine, those working class populations. And that's that's the tragedy of this all. And of course, the working Ooh. class here. Um, thank you so much for your incredible and profound analysis. I want to address a couple questions in the chat to wrap this up. And thank you everyone for sticking with us. This was a really insightful discussion, really crucial moving forward to understand this in-depth history and how we got to this point and what we can do to really pressure our government to stop escalating the tensions. Uh, Brian, we forgot uh, someone brought up the Minsk agreement. This is an important facet that's not m talked about very much that has to do with those uh, semi-autonomous regions. Do you want to discuss this? Yeah, absolutely. Very important. So there's two agreements, Minsk one and Minsk two. Now, they were both signed after the coup uh, in February 2014. So they're signed later in the year and in 2015 updated, and they provide the basis for basically freezing the conflict. Don't bring in more weapons, freeze the conflict, try to have like sort of a mediated solution. The, the pro-fascist or fascist forces in Ukraine in particular violated those agreements over and over again for the reason I stated earlier. They actually want conflict with Russia. They see if you, if you can, you know, hit the Russian population in the eastern part of Ukraine enough, maybe you'll lure the, the Russian government into a battle. And they think that would be very good because it will increase Ukrainian nationalism, anti-Russian sentiment, and uh, uh, especially bring in heavy weapons from Western countries. So Minsk was the agreement that the Russians really were committed to. This is, this is so important because again, if you think of Putin as just the evil devil I mean, whatever we think of Putin, you know, we're not obviously we're not supporting Putin, but we need to have an objective faculty when we assess any leadership. Putin was for these agreements for the last eight years. They have been promoting them at the same time as they've been demanding that Ukraine not come into NATO. And I would have to say that as a consequence of the constant and endless violations, mainly by the United States. Obama, when you think of Obama, and I know a lot of everybody has many criticisms of, of Obama, same here, but Obama compared to Trump or Biden was a voice of restraint. He would not allow weapons to be sold to or shipped to Ukraine after those two agreements were signed. So Obama said, don't do this because it's going to accelerate a conflict with Russia. We don't need it. Trump comes in in 2017, the Democrats all accuse Trump of being Putin's like agent and that the only reason he's president is that Putin put him there. So there's all this demonization for progressive people who don't want Donald Trump to be their president, which is understandable, but they're told this is because of the Kremlin. 
we America couldn't have somebody like Donald Trump. Only Russia could make this happen. Only Russia could impose Donald Trump on our country. Uh, so all of that said about Donald Trump, Trump sends weapons to Ukraine. And then when he held them up for a couple of weeks, remember, he's impeached. He, the Democrats impeached <laughs> Trump in, in July because based on the fact that he was trying to get Zelensky to do some of his dirty work uh, against Biden and Biden's son, you know, and they're trying to expose Hunter Biden and Zelensky was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. He was like, OK, we're not going to send you weapons. And by the way, the U.S. always calls them defensive weapons. Well, you know, you can call a missile a defensive weapon, but if it's landing on you, it doesn't feel defensive. So <laughs> let's just get rid of the word defensive weapons. Weapons are weapons. So Trump comes in and instead of being Putin's stooge, he's sending more and more advanced weapons to Ukraine. So Biden comes in and who are Biden's people? Victoria Newland's back, uh, Kurt Campbell, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken. Those were the Maidan team. That was the Maidan team back in 2014. Now they're like, not they're not just little boys and girls and junior partners uh, playing this role of big, bad imperialists. Now they really have power. And so they've been pouring all of these weapons into Ukraine, including Turkey's drones that are like monumentally sophisticated and could even some of the drone technology can deliver nuclear weapons. And the Russians were completely taken by, they were, they were surprised about how this has accelerated in the past and past year. And then more fighting that violated Minsk all the time back in September and October of this year. So that's when Putin said, okay, unless we do something now, we're gonna, we're gonna, Ukraine is gonna have 1,200 miles of Ukraine-Russian border are gonna have advanced weapons pointed at us. We have to act. So that's when he had plan A, and plan B. Plan B A was he announced, we have red lines. We're serious. You better listen to us. You better negotiate. Plan B is we're amassing 150,000 troops. You know, the fact that Biden kept announcing they're going to invade, they're going to invade, they're going to invade. I think it's because Putin and the Russians weren't trying to hide that they were going to invade. I think they wanted the Americans to know, like, plan B is real. So you better go with plan A. And that was when they were rejected, then they were like, okay, we're going to go for plan B. They they played all the hands all the cards in their hand. I mean, will it be considered historically a reckless, catastrophic move or some brilliant counterweight? You know, blah blah blah, using great power politics, sort of a Bonapartist militarist answer to imperialism. We don't know because we don't. As you said, Abby, none of this is unknown. The danger is so high. The danger of this spiral. I mean, it's already awful for the people in Ukraine. I mean, they're in their subways, they're sheltering, you know, we can't look at politics as just geostrategic politics and not care about the people uh, in Ukraine, the workers, the farmers in Ukraine, we care about them, just like we care about the workers and farmers in the eastern part of Ukraine. And we care about the workers and farmers in Russia. And the workers and farmers in Alabama and Georgia and, you know, close to where I am in Washington, D.C. And, and nearby Maryland. And, you know, we have to care about people and the working classes that don't make these decisions, that don't bring the world to the to the edge of war, but are told in each and every case, line up behind your own government, salute the flag, say the Pledge of Allegiance. Don't think about it. You know, just remember what nationality and ethnicity you belong to. 
as a socialist, as a Marxist, as an internationalist, we're promoting the idea that you have to think about the world and world politics in a different way. Right. I fully agree, Brian. Um, another super chat question is about Zelensky basically announcing days before this happened that he would like Ukraine to have nuclear weapons. Days later, Russia invades. Um, I know that you talked extensively about NATO, and I just wanted to reiterate and stress that threat of nuclear attack with NATO armed countries. I mean, the fact that any NATO country being attacked, of course, invites the the full response from you know nuclear armed states so it, it's it's a lot of heightened tensions with um the entry point into nato basically pledging by nato countries that we we have the ability to attack you and essentially bring in nuclear war yeah and i don't know i didn't see Zelensky's actual comment and a lot of what we're hearing we're getting as secondhand news sources so mm -hmm. you know you mentioned in the beginning the fog of war did he say it? Maybe. If he did say it, it was ridiculously stupid, because obviously <laughs> they weren't about to get nuclear weapons, but it's a perfect talking point uh, for the Russians who are you know, seeking different justifications for their military intervention. But the week before and the weeks before, Zelensky was telling Biden, would you stop threatening uh, Russia? Would you stop so would you stop saying that in, an invasion is imminent? You're disrupting our economy. You're hurting our economy. Like, let's chill out. And so Zelensky was not at that time an accelerant to the struggle. If anything, if you look at Zelensky's position, it's been a, a moderating position. When he came in, he came in. He's a Russian speaker. He's from the east, the southeast part of Ukraine. Uh, he got a lot of votes from the eastern part of Ukraine to become the next president. And it looked in the beginning like he was really wanting to implement the Minsk Accords. I mean, that was his orientation. Now he's been moved further and further and further into the camp of being like a stooge for the United States. But even with that, in the last couple of weeks, he was telling the United States, please stop with all of this rhetoric. So I think if he said the thing about nuclear weapons, it might be he because the invasion was coming or he knew it was coming maybe it was reckless talk i don't think i don't think it's a dis if if the comment was made i don't think it's decisive for why russia has acted you can't have this kind of military operation without the contingency at least having been planned far far in advance it wasn't just they they obviously had this plan worked out and then they were hoping i think to have plan a be implemented by showing muscle, showing Russian muscle in the last four months. I think they were hoping, they were really hoping that the Germans and the French, and I think that's why Putin was talking to the new uh, leadership in Germany and Macron in France, they were having lots of discussions. They were hoping Germany and France would stand up to the US and say, absolutely not. Let's make a commitment to Russia that Ukraine won't come into NATO. And I think that they kind of gave up on that and then decided to go all in with this other strategy. Yeah, it was a, a very risky maneuver. Um, and of course, we're in the middle of it right now, so we have no idea how this is gonna play out. Right now, as far as I know, Biden has made a pretty meek speech in response. I mean, thankfully, I, I, I mean, really it's in the hands of how, how belligerent is the response going to be from Western powers and NATO forces? Uh, but as of yet, I mean, they haven't 
declared that um, Russia is going to be removed from the SWIFT European financial agreement and the sanctions implemented. Maybe you can speak more to that. That's also a, a question in the chat is like, what are these sanctions directed at? How are they going to impact the countries um, that do rely on Russia for help? Yeah, the sanctions hurt Europe. I mean, ending Nord Stream 2 has been a dream of American imperialism and a nightmare for the German uh, establishment, not just the German people. Um, the Germans, by the way, back, I referred to the Bucharest conference back in 2008, where U.S. said NATO is, uh, Ukraine is going to come into NATO, and so is Georgia. It was Angela Merkel, who is the Christian Democratic right center leader, who said absolutely not at Bucharest. And the French also said no. So it's both the this, this Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, right center, left center, they're both wanted to have a, a more independent, more open policy towards Russia. And certainly that's part, partly because Northern Europe really depends on Russian energy sources. I mean, you can build all the liquefied natural gas tanks in the world, but that that's coming then from the UAE or from the United States, thousands of miles away at much higher cost. I mean, Europe is going to be hurt by those sanctions and then sanctioning the Russian economy. Well, Russia, Russia's trade is with Europe. I mean, it's really the American sanctions are a form of dictatorship economic dictatorship imposed against the whole world, mainly on their targets, mainly on the workers and the poor of a targeted society. Hardly, they hardly have any influence on the elites in that society, but then they have collateral impact on other economies that would prefer to trade with the sanctioned country, but can't because if they do, then they will be the sanctions. It's really, uh, that, that was the situation with Iran. Look at what, you know, Obama signs the the, uh, the the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear Iran, ar the Iran nuclear arms deal, Europe is very excited about it. They want to trade with Iran. They want to get Iranian oil. Trump comes in and rips it up. And what did the European uh, capitalists do? Even though they wanted and would benefit from the Iran nuclear arms deal, they didn't stand up to the U.S. And why? They feared that they would become the victims of American sanctions. So American sanctions are a form of global dictatorship against everyone, uh, not just principally against the targets, but also as collateral damage against the others. And certainly this is true about Europe right now. Let's close this up by, I know that you don't want to offer any predictions, of course, that would be irresponsible. But Not I guess, about the future, not about right. the future. So what do we need to be prepared for, Brian, here as anti-war activists, as people who genuinely care about peace and preventing our country from continuing this imperialist aggression around the world? Well, we're in a very, very difficult moment. Um, it's gonna be hard to go out and be really anti-war and focused on the Pentagon and NATO when it's Russia that's intervening militarily in Ukraine. Everyone will say, wait, doesn't this give justification for why NATO should expand? Doesn't Russia, appear to be the aggressor? Isn't Russia something to fear and to hate? And don't the, isn't the American rationale justified? Because on its face, it seems to be a justification. So we're in a period where there's going to be, at least momentarily, uh, we're going to be somewhat isolated. Uh, 
You know, it's like right right after September 11th when we formed the Answer Coalition. We formed it three days after September 11th. When we came out and said, we have to fight against the American war drive, people were like, wait, uh, <laughs> terrorists just uh, bombed the World Trade Center or uh, blew it up and the Pentagon. Why are you talking about the United States? And we said, because this is what's going to happen. The U.S. will cynically take advantage of the attacks to do its own thing, to launch new wars of, of aggression. And we Americans have to go out and fight. And at first, people spat upon us. I mean, we were really isolated. And George W. Bush's you know, political rating went to 90%. And he would, had been highly unpopular. But over time, that, that dissipates. And so the truth tellers, the, the people who are honest, the people who stick to their principles, the people who are really anti-war and anti-imperialist, by promoting and agitating against the real danger of war, which comes from our government, or the gov I, I use air quotes around our government, uh, against the U.S. government, uh, over time, people will see that what we're saying is actually true, even though at the moment, it's going to be very, very hard. So we have to stick to our principles. We have to look for opportunities to do public uh, education, public agitation against war and militarism, explain what I've tried to do in some small measure about the history of NATO. Like, even though it's complicated and hard, we have to do this work. And, you know, I'm, I'm also uh, a member of the uh, International People's Assembly, which is a new global network of uh, forces fighting for justice and against imperialism. And one of the watchwords of the IPA, the International People's Assembly, is to wage the battle of ideas. Because in some ways, we can't really influence the outcome right now in Eastern or Central Europe. But the, the war danger which emanates from here in the United States is premised on the justification and rationale provided to the American people by the establishment and echoed by the media that's the ideas of the ruling class. As Karl Marx said, the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class. Well, we, the anti-war people, the people for justice, the people who are socialists, we have to fight the battle of ideas because ultimately by winning the battle of ideas, by winning working class and poor people over to our side, by carrying out that kind of political education, we build a mighty force that can actually make change. So even though at moments it looks bleak, at other moments, it looks like, you know, the political moment, the political uh, forces for progress and change are are you know dominating. But unless we have good ideas, solid ideas, ideas anchored in anti-imperialism and socialism and Marxism, in other words, the ideas that are combating the ideas of capitalists of whatever country, uh, we can't really ultimately win. Activism by itself is important. Is while important, isn't enough. We have to win the battle of ideas because that's how mass movements are forged and that's how they endure and that's ultimately how they win. Thank you so much, Brian, for taking so much of your time today to explain the situation, to give your crucial insight on where we go from here. Everyone tuning in, subscribe now to Breakthrough News. Subscribe to Brian's socialist program, the socialist program on all podcast platforms, Breakthrough News, any Empire File heads out there, Empire Babies, you have to be watching Breakthrough News. Um, it is an amazing partnership in all of all of the information warfare from an anti-imperialist lens. Please subscribe and support the show, so support Brian's work. And thank you so much, Brian, again, and thank you Breakthrough News for hosting this crucial debate, not debate, but conversation. Thanks so much, Brian.
Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Empire Files. Thank you so much.